Hello and welcome to the Taglines podcast. I'm your host Matilda Martin and over the coming months we'll be talking about a range of topics relevant to foreign policy, international security and development. We hope that you'll join us by subscribing or by visiting the Taglines hub at tagindev.com where you can share, comment or com- continue the conversation with us. Today, we will be trying to unpick why, despite such great investments, military capacity building continues to fail across the world. We will be trying to understand if there are things that we should be doing differently and how we can work together to make these efforts more sustainable. So joining me is General Ishmael Asudani. He's a retired one-star general in the Iraqi army. Ishmael has also been a senior instructor Uh, in the Iraqi War College and a military attaché in the USA. Also joining me here in the studio is Stuart McCutcheon. He's a former British military officer who served in Iraq and has since leaving the army worked on a lot of capacity building projects. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll start uh, trying to orientate ourselves a little bit. We, we've all heard and read a lot about efforts by the US in particular, but also other Western countries and how they train armies in, in Afghanistan. And it seems like despite investment over decades, it's been relatively unsuccessful. And it would be really interesting for us to understand a little bit more about why that might be, even perhaps starting from the baseline of what do we mean by military capacity building and training? Uh, Ishmael, do you want to just tell us a bit more about, about the topic and, and your thoughts on it? Uh, that has created some kind of, you know, um, insurgency against the foreign presence and trying to delegitimate uh, the forces and discredit the, um, the government institution or the military Afghan uh, forces um, in front of or the, in the eyes of the uh, Afghan community. Um, it is very complicated to, um, to uh, explain, uh, you know, the, um, the tradition and the culture uh, of, of the Afghan, um, Afghan people and their communities and what are, uh, you know, influential factors that um, playing a role, a crucial role in their life, which are um, the religion and um, the tribalism. I think tribes and their uh, influence in their life is very important. So therefore, I think the, as a consequences, um, you know, Taliban is becoming more stronger than the military by the time uh, they have enforced the people either by intimidation or by, through the uh, propaganda they have spread against the government and their uh, institutions or its institutions. So um, this created a, a gap between the community and the national security forces and make, it, make the uh, security forces very vulnerable uh, to enforce the law and uh, to counter the insurgency of Taliban, while Taliban was spreading themselves and uh, you know putting themselves as a very strong player and the legitimate player, um, 
that has not, you know, uh, the foreign militaries has, you know, um, work professionally, as they said, they have, you know, trained, they have equipped the forces, but the um, development of, uh, you know, bridging the gap between the communities and the forces has uh, faced a lot of challenges and the government also, there are lots of, you know, uh, problematic issues that has created a lot of, you know, uh, things that would make the Afghan uh, government very weak, uh, like corruption, and the corruption is 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 fundamental uh, issue to undermine the efforts to uh, build the capacity of the forces, and therefore, it's it's all the investment for twenty years has been vanished, has been. Um, gone um, within days and weeks, and the Afghan military have uh, collapsed and uh, left all the weapons uh, behind to be controlled by Taliban, and Taliban returned. That was, you know, embarrassingly, um, you know, strategic failure in the policies and uh, in building the generate or generating the forces of the Afghan army. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's it was seeing how the not just the the Afghan army, but the entire Afghan government fell within within days after, as you say, twenty years of investment, um, and and the amount of money that's gone into that, falling falling from the sideways immediately. It just demonstrates, in my view, how how little how little traction capacity building can have. And that's something I really want us to unpick today, um, because, frankly, Afghanistan is not the only place where military capacity building is going going on. It's it's really all over the world. So, Stuart, you work on this, not just in Afghanistan, but you've seen it elsewhere. What would you say are some of the key challenges? Is it the same as what we saw in Afghanistan or, or what would you how would you summarize it? Yeah, we've got time. Can I start with the first question you said, which yeah, is what sure. is capacity development as well? Because I think in the, in the difference of the way General Ismail would answer that question and where how I would answer the question probably shows some of the challenges. Um, in the British military, we consider fighting power to have three components to it, to have a uh, conceptual component, which is our doctrine, you know, how, how we fight, what actually um, tactics do we use, what strategies do we use, um, we have a uh, physical component, which is the number of, of trained personnel, how well they're trained and, and how well they're equipped. And then there's the kind of moral component. You know, what are they fighting for? What do they believe in what they're there for? And, and I think, you know, a, a traditional Western view of, of military power is those three. So when we go to a country uh, for the, you know, a British sponsored uh, capacity development of military, we look at developing those three. And I think, you know, in different examples, we've got the vision in Ukraine of how important the moral component is, uh, but also the physical component in, in you know, gifting them the equipment. Um, and then in, in Iraq, for instance, you know, the, the training uh, that's been done is really low focusing on the, a lot of them are conceptual as well and, and provide writing doctrine and, um, and writing all sorts of uh, policy and strategy. Um, but actually, one of the key things that General Ismail highlighted straight away was was the social political yeah. and I think something you know in the UK we just don't really consider that to be part of, of military capacity in a way that that leaves us blind to a lot of these challenges 
that were rightly raised there. I mean, absolutely. And and it's it's almost that sort of uh, copy paste that that the UK and the US and other Western powers tend to do when they go in and look at military or security agency capacity building, which uh, sort of takes away that that contextualization and the, takes away the the deep understanding of the country and that environment that you need to have to be successful. So in your view, General Ishmael, how, how successful would you say that capacity building has been uh, over the last sort of 20 years? You know, not looking at, at Afghanistan, but, but other countries as well. Well, you know, um, you mentioned that, uh, that uh, any building the capacity of any country uh, required um, deep understanding of the social issues and, you know, um, the acceptance of the foreign uh, partners to be on, on, on the ground. Um, and, of course, stabilize the political processes. I think there are two parallel, you know, lines in, in, in you know, achieving the success in, 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 or in the building capacity of any forces that is stability of political process and the military development of the forces. If these two had, you know, kind of, you know, um, intersection uh, in any in any point that would create of concerns of the failure of that issue. Also putting, you know, that uh, on the frame, on, on the term of, of understanding the cultural issues and uh, familiar with the cultural issues. And as, as I said, in, in, you know, cultures in, for instance, Germany is different than the cultures in the Middle East. Germany, after um, the World War II, uh, has you know, um, an opportunity to rebuild its its you know uh, institutions, forces, to be more democratic. Um, um, United States and its allies try to build new democracy in Iraq. Uh, on, um, after overthrown uh, the uh, autocratic regime in Iraq. And that autocratic regime has, you know, uh, you know, ruled Iraq for 30 years almost. That is three decades. And the people have culturally are uh, having, you know, uh, understanding that the autocracy is, is the real ideal rule uh, to them, so um, in order to, you know, transition this, you know, people and their forces, which has been developed and generated under the autocratic, and the allegiance of the people is not to the nation, is to the dictator. So it's not easy to transition this kind of, you know, um, it's a huge challenge. It's, it's, it's educational aspect. It's, uh, it's you know, education on the practices of democracy, um, accepting the others, and also, you know, you need to understand um, that in the Middle East or 
as I said, the difference between United States, uh, Middle East and the other you know, regions in the world that they don't accept the foreign presence. Um, they don't want militaries to be on their ground. And also don't forget that, um, for instance, Ba'ath Party in Iraq has lost the power and uh, uh, they have opposed by any all means, including to ally with uh, terrorist groups in Iraq in order to undermine the political processes. That have been said also, the regional players, regional powers also have been, you know, uh, feeling threatened from the new democracy in Iraq. So they have worked hard in order to, um, to this, uh, uh, you know, experiment to be uh, failed. And ultimately they have allied with, uh, with Al-Qaeda and created Daesh all, or, or for Iran has supported, you know, um, political parties that already own militias and these militias do not want to disarm or, you know, and these are huge challenges in creating and generating the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that political processes are very important that, uh, that political parties, you know, why, why the forces are, you know, uh, collapsing easily uh, with any, any uh, challenge. Uh, I'll give you an example, uh, you know, uh, Mosul has fallen down to Daesh to 2014, and Daesh was only, you know, 400 to 60 to 600 elements, uh, while Iraq army has three divisions in Mosul. And they have, uh, you know, um, had lots of weapons, has a lots of, you know, capacity to deter those uh, terrorists. But the problem is the environment. Uh, the army was, uh, you know, um, uh, working in a very hostile environment, and there was a propaganda, uh, you know, separate. Uh, Separated on in, in Mosul and other countries or other uh, you know governorates uh, in Iraq, uh, you know um, discrediting the army and uh, you know uh, calling the army as a sectarian uh, forces is not uh, representing the people of of Iraq, and therefore uh, they have undermined the legitimacy of of the presence of the Iraq forces in front of the population, the population has welcomed uh, you know, Daesh by using the uh, secretarian card in their hands and, uh, you know, presenting themselves as a protect protective uh, uh, to uh, the Sunni people. When the forces feel confident in themselves and uh, people would rely on them and have the self, you know, um, you know, um, you know, reliability on them. Um, when political parties unconditionally support the forces, if you look at Iraq now, um, there are many political parties on um, uh, their own militias, 
and they don't they 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 feel concerns from a strong military in Iraq. Um, I don't want to name because all the political parties who has uh, affiliation or um, military wing in their um, organization, um, regardless, like, like Kurdistan, they have their own Peshmerga, and they do not recognize the national forces as the national forces. That has opened the door in front of even the foreign um, invasion, incursion from Turkey, some, some, you know, um, um, Iranian uh, regime also starts striking by their missiles in the in the north, and also this, you know, there are many, many, you know, uh, other provinces has, you know, militias that are out of the control of the of 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 the of the government. So that has created this kind of chaos and that chaos would be um, you know if the military given that you know unconditional political support from all domestic players um, I, I feel that that the, the the mission will be success in in building the generation and by by supporting Iraq can, can uh, I add a couple yeah, of examples yeah. of where where I think we have done done okay um so yeah because i was going to ask <laughs> yeah. you know what where have we maybe seen some more success i think there's a couple of examples at the really quite tactical end of the spectrum i think one good example is ukraine but i would argue that's probably leveraging existing capacity through provision of of you know surveillance i star assets and and um uh, more equipment tanks <clears throat> more in uh, intelligence cycles um th that kind of that kind of uh, support to existing capacity that's already on the ground i mean it's pretty clear that ukraine is is an amazing army uh, and the, the yeah. bravery and courage being shown by the fighters is is um, there's no credit being taken for that by the west but but certainly we're leveraging the capacity they already have well beyond the means of, of their military and I, I think that is an excellent example and i think the other example is at a really small scale tactical level which i think we saw in in mosul um most prominently which is the likes of ctd and cts which are the, the counterterrorism departments and, and counterterrorism service which are uh, Iraq, Iraqi's specialist uh, counterterrorism services, special forces, and uh, again, incredibly brave and courageous people who, you know, sacrificed their lives in huge numbers to, to defeat uh, Daesh in Mosul. They were one on one directly supported by by Western militaries and and, and capacity developed, and and um, and I believe that you know that that kind of training. Um, uh, conceptual support in planning of activities and everything mm. clearly had a a, um, a large effect in, in helping them. But I think those examples uh, are, are good because they leveraged something that already existed. Uh, they already had the moral component, the conceptual component and, and the physical component and uh, and, and we supported that. I think mm. the examples that General Listener has been talking about and given really good examples of are all at the political end where we really do quite often miss the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, and, and together. Okay. Actually, um, Stuart, um, I just want to, um, we need this success that you mentioned to be sustainable for a long time. And sustainable of these needs, you know, not only military efforts, because as you know, the military efforts could maintain the success for a very short time, not very, very limited time, let's say six months or one year or two years maybe. But for the long term, there are many strategies should be followed, like economic um, 
political um, uh, you know strategies and trying to minimize the challenges in front of the military in order to operate in a in a in a um, peaceful environment environment and enforce the, the the stability and security you mentioned the um Ukrainian uh, example, which I believe that is a very ideal because um, there are no foreign uh, militaries are existed, only Ukrainian, and the train was taking the place by the um, NATO allies or partners, and weapons sent uh, to train them on that, and they are using that efficiently. However, I told you that um, it's a good example, but in, in, in Iraq, that there are, you know, many complicated, you know, aspects make it very difficult for the Iraqi forces to sustain the success that have been achieved. Yeah, I would absolutely say that. And I think that what makes these uh, examples quite different, you know, we and what you, you look at Ukraine, there are people united by a common enemy and there's a common threat and therefore coming together essentially having that both political and social commonality across the board does make it more effective and impactful. You look at Iraq, Afghanistan, I would also argue places like Somalia and Yemen, where we've seen large investment in, in military capacity building, but still there's a threat, there's an enemy. You don't get that sort of commonality because there is political disparity, there's a divide, and, and that is probably the main threat to sort of sustainability of, of, of investment in these issues. Um, I mean, just in terms of, of your both your views, is, is there a way to make military capacity building sustainable? Stuart, what do you think? Well, I certainly hope so, because... Uh... Um, myself and General Ismail are about to kick off a, a project in, in working with the Iraqi military to uh, to uh, adapt their military training systems. And, and so certainly we built a solution that we believe in and we believe works. But uh, I'm very conscious of the, the, the being the person who thinks that that, that it will work this time. Um, so, we, you know, we, we spent a long time talking and understanding the social situation and the context and, and tried to un, uh, to make solutions that worked. And I think I can boil down a few of those kind of key nuggets first now. I think the first is resisting the temptation to, to drop external doctrine or external um, systems in. You know, the US uh, has a military which, you know, the, the investment and the size of it is something that distorts all like uh, all other concepts of, of yeah. a military and and it's so far beyond what's achievable or attainable even by you know uk standards that i think there's a temptation to well there's a there's a danger to forget that we can't just take what the military the us military does and put it onto to any other military and the same as applies you know to some extent to the uk military and, and iraqi military and that's not just a capacity thing it's not saying that they don't have the capacity to deliver it it's just a different system and so i think the temptation is always to take UK best practice and uh, and uh, and adapt rather than to build something up from the ground that, that works uh, for for the country that you're building. Mm. Um, I think one of the other uh, key challenges is, as General Ismail rightly pointed out, is sustainability. And we've worked on a lot of these projects where you can train an awful lot of people 
Uh, and within two years, all those people are in new positions. And they've gone out and they've been under the leadership of people who haven't been trained. And they, they've been directed in different ways. And you've got leaders who are trained by old systems, who believe that the old systems are correct and that it was tougher in their day. Uh, and so you can do you know, far, even five years of intensive training and support uh, and without that kind of sustainability through. Uh, you know, you're not going to expect to see that long term change filter all the way up to the top level. Mm. So to design around that, you know, we've we've been asked actually by the clients in this case to to design a systems approach to training uh, and to design a, a training that that uh, what well, an, an approach that allows the Iraqi army to update their own training modules as their operational context changes. And I think that's been allowed, that's also allowed us to um, understand the political situation that, that the Iraq army is looking or has been mandated to try and change its focus from security actor uh, towards a traditional conventional army force. And, uh, and that that's massive change in role is going to see a huge change in, in the requirements, uh, the role uh, that needs to be filled by an officer mm. in each of those situations. So we're hoping to work at the officer level uh, to be to be need-led, so requirement-led, define the requirements at a strategic level, let the strategic uh, requirement define what the tactical requirement is, uh, and that, that will filter all the way down to what does a second lieutenant need to be able to do when he leaves the uh, Iraqi officer academy. Mm. Uh, and I think by doing something that's um, systemic, built from the ground up for Iraq, not with a, with a NATO or a UK drop in, I think that's how we're hoping to achieve it. Anyway. Yeah, I, I just wanted to have a, uh, a short conversation about power dynamics and sort of political dynamics. Uh, in particular, again, coming back to your point about culture inside the partners. So let's say we are looking here at Iraq. I think we'll continue on that example. How much do political affiliations or, or tribal identities sort of trump the formal chain of command or or the, let's say, overt objectives of, of a force? And if that is a culture, if that is important, how how can how can they be worked within or how can you use them to, to your advantage to achieve the, the sort of objectives that you were coming in with? It'd be really great to hear your view, Ishmael. That's very, very crucial, very important question, in fact. Um, as I said uh, at the beginning, that there are two crucial um, and fundamental uh, aspects that influence the uh, the governments in the Middle East, that is the religion and the tribe, tribalism also. And um, that is really uh, a fact on the selection of, of the commanders, for instance, of the military to, um, you know, uh, for instance, after the um, overthrow, overthrowing the Saddam regime for, in Iraq, Every entity in Iraq has felt that they are marginalized and they would like to have some representation in, in, their, in the, any institution in the government, including the military. So they have, you know, created, which is not, not constituted by the constitution, unfortunately, it is a, a policy, let's say, has been followed and that became more strong than the constitution itself that is this ethno secretarian quota for instance if if the commander is a shia the assistant uh, um, should be sunni and the 
the WT should should be a curse, and that has affected you know on on you know selecting the 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 efficient and qualified you know commanders to be in the right position and appointment. Um, that you know uh, trying. <clears throat> trying to get rid of that system, but uh, unfortunately, is the um, the government to try hard to push it, in, but that wouldn't, you know, help. In fact, unfortunately, so for instance, the air force commander is a Kurd, and the land land the ground com commander is a Sunni, and the um, uh, the other commanders has to be Shia, and that's or the chief. Chief of staff has to be Shia, and that's really is not helping, you know, the Iraqi uh, security forces to perform efficiently in the field. So, unfortunately, that has also give a, a you know a, open the door or the gate in front of the political parties to have some role inside the military. Uh, institution, and that is very dangerous, as you know. That because we we want to build our forces or the Iraqi security forces based on the professionalism, based to be a national for for the Iraq um, all over Iraq, and, and need to be neutral as well and independent and um, draw the uh, population. Uh, reliability on them and 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 people you know would like um, do not care if that Sunni or Shia the commander but they want security stability the real representation I, in my opinion the real representation of the ethnic groups or the religious group is 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 when that commander is efficiently you know provide the security in the specific area or the area of responsibility and the people would feel comfortable to him that is the real representation so how to overcome this it's 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 required you know some self-denial from the political parties uh, unfortunately also it needs a self-denial from the commanders who who would like to you know to be affiliated to the political parties in order to assume positions that are not fit to their qualification absolutely i mean that that's really interesting i think ismail and and those political uh, political tribal power dynamics as we said not, they're not sort of novel to iraq and i think that's important for our listeners too you know, it's it's really something that ha that goes on across the globe. But com so coming to you, Stuart, before before we sort of wrap up, it's what is your view and what's been your experience around working around these political and power dynamics um, as as a foreigner as well? Um, yeah, I, there's a phrase in the military which is that in in war everything is simple, but even the simplest thing is very very complicated. And I think uh, whoever said that spent a lot of time on Salisbury Plain. You know, with red and red and blue markers, because you know when the war in Iraq, the war against um, war against Daesh um, in Iraq was not simple at all, uh, and even the simplest thing still remains very difficult. Um, it's it's something that that we just 
as a as a Western as a as a British uh, officer, you can read everything you can. I I try to read you know everything on Salafi jihadism, everything on Sunni um, Sunni and Shia uh, sectarian divides, everything on Iraqi policy, I possibly uh, politics I could before I went, but it's it's almost a fool's errand. And and you know you're at the stage of Umberto's Echo's library of you need to you need to recognise how much you don't know, uh, and therefore. Um, as as exactly as General Ismail said, have have Iraqis everywhere on your team, um, who they're the ones that can remind you from something as simple as a public holiday that you know you've forgotten about that you're about to kind of you know launch a campaign uh, in the middle of of, of a, a religious celebration uh, to to the whole strategic approach that you're taking is not in line with the political will of the ruling party, uh, and I, I think essentially it comes down to exactly how we started with the success stories here mm. um, with Ukraine is that what we can do is we can nudge and we can we can uh, take friction away from um, something that's already moving. I think what we have to, f- to forget about and what we should be forgetting about is trying to push countries or push parties in directions that we want to do. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really, really useful summary. I mean, of our conversation today and uh, I'm just going to end with a question that I like to ask all people come through on this podcast. Um, it is, if you had unlimited money and power, what is the one thing that you would do, just one, to improve international defense capacity building? All right, you've got unlimited power and unlimited money. One thing. Ishmael, would you like to go first? Well, I think... Uh... <clears throat> It, it, it's a mutual understanding, a joint understanding of each other. And uh, working together to create peace, I believe that is very cost-effective approach to achieve this. But that, in the dynamic of the geopolitics and uh, um, what is going on in, 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 in the world of the contest and the competition between the superpowers to dominate on on um, the scene, or you know, uh, Russia and Ukraine um, uh, war, as well as you know the contest between um, United States and China. I think it's 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 ideal to say that uh, working for peace is is cost-effective, but, you know, in order to build the forces that would achieve the peace, you require, you know, huge investment. You need uh, huge time as well and uh, human resources as well. So I, 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 it's, it's difficult to answer your question, Matilda, but but at the same time, you know, if I put myself in a, in a position to to make that happen, I would say that the superpowers should come together and understand each other. Maybe they can distribute the world, the planet between them. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, that is an interesting one for sure. <laughs> I definitely haven't heard that one yet. So thank you. No one, no, no one would satisfy with their share, by the way. No, of course not. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go for a very international development answer. I'm All right, come on, Here let's do it. 
Uh, I think it's the logical extension of, of UN security. Uh, was it 1425? Was it 1325? What was the number? About women. 1425. Women, yeah. Women, peace and security. 1325, women, <laughs> peace and security. I think from what I saw when I was fighting, uh, well, that wasn't fighting, sorry, when I was supporting the Kurds uh, um, uh, fighting against Daesh was the amazing role that women had in the military um, and the empowerment that it then had in them in society and their roles afterwards. Um and I think I would I would kind of move towards trying to get 50-50 um, gender balance in, in the military at, at all levels. I think um, the military is still a, a bit of a boys' sport, and I think mm. it's massively to its detriment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, everywhere I've seen, the more engagement you have from women at all levels, the more sustainable peace is. And uh, I think one of my favourite sort of quotes is that women... The women are vectors of peace uh, and that's how they should be seen so thank you for that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um thank you both so much for for joining me today it's been really great to talk about, to you about this really interesting and and slightly difficult topic so thank you for your time thank you very much for having me thank you take care nice to see you it's clear that the topic of investment in military capacity building has a lot of contention around it it seems to me that we have failed on most levels when it comes to this topic, but that there is some glimmers of hope if we can come together to deepen the understanding of the context that these operations take place in. I think perhaps it is the slight arrogance and naivete of Western governments uh, that sort of our way is the only way or the best way that has led to this. And... And if we can overcome that and, and sort of meet, meet halfway, there's probably a lot more ground to be made on this topic. And, and if we can work together around building capacity of security forces within the current and also evolving political contexts of these countries, such as Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, there is potential longer lasting efforts and investment in the peace and security for its people, I think, at play. Um, however, we probably have a very long way to go on that. So perhaps we'll have another conversation about this topic in not too far along time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>